0: And welcome to On The Record, Off The Cuff Album Review Podcast. Uh, This evening we're going for something a a little bit different. We have on a previous episode uh, reviewed the Titanic album, Nevermind, by Nirvana. And uh, as with such an album, uh, I had a few more friends who really, really wanted to have a a little bit of a chat about it and and put their tuppence in. Um, So... This is the first episode that I'm going to be doing so far, which may become a thing, depending on, on how contributors are and, and how many people I can get onto our first attempts at certain albums, uh, where we're going to do, anyway, a Nevermind Extra episode. And with us tonight, I've got a first-timer and friend of mine, uh, Rebecca, if you want to say Hello. Hello. And we've also got Sean, who's been on uh, one of our podcasts so far. Say hello, Sean. Hello. Hello. So, uh, I'm not going to say too much tonight, as I've already ranted and raved for nearly two and a half hours previously at another session. But we'll uh, see what we can uh, get out of this and get, of course, your guys' thoughts on, on what's going on with this album. So I guess my first... Uh, my first question would be—I don't know who fancies taking it first—but my first question would probably be what your first impressions are of the album as a whole when you'd heard it a couple of times. What was sort of initial impressions? Do you want to do you want to kick off, Sean, and then I can do. I mean, um, I mean, in terms of background,
1: this this is a uh, this is an album that that kind of passed me by at the time. I was, I mean... Yeah, you know, I'd have been living under a rock, I think, to have not heard "Smells Like Teen Spirit." But as an album as a whole, I was heavily entrenched in the um, in the underground rave scene, and that's basically where where I spent spent my days and nights. So, other than "Smells Like Teen Spirit," it was um, it was quite a, a few years later, and actually, it was when I started to to DJ and and DJ with more diverse. Music, So playing student nights and playing rock and grunge and alternative uh, rock and whatever you want to call it. And and it was as a consequence of having to diversify my music that I was playing that, that really opened my eyes and ears to this album. And uh, like I said, I think before we came on, this is something, this is an album that I return to on such a regular basis. I, I, I couldn't even tell you how many times I've listened to it. It's in the thousands, I'm sure. And I, personally, I think it's a, an absolute masterpiece of an album. I, I absolutely love it. I think that every track on it is, is solid. It's it's got emotion. It's raw. It's hard. It's it's just it's everything that that you would want in an album. It's
0: for me. It's it's, it's beautiful. Well, like myself, Becca, I suspect you weren't hidden in the in the rave scene because I I, <laughs> I wasn't. I was here when it happened, but. Um... <laughs> Yeah, uh, give me your thoughts, Rebecca, let's see what we think Well,
2: of. ironically, I had an uncle who was about 14 years older than me, who was an absolute rave head, and uh, so actually, I probably was a little bit more into that <laughs> more than scene me. when I was younger, but uh, no, I mean, like, you know, 91, I was still in primary school, um, and I hadn't really kind of come to music properly at that point. I think, you know, I was a classic, you know, girl of the 80s, early, you know, late 80s, early 90s, I was listening to whatever was on top of the pops and in smash hits, you know, there was a lot of boy bands, although actually I did like the more rougher edge of it. I was more e 17 than type that. I liked a bit of a bad boy. A
0: (laughs) a classic combination, the e 17, take that.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, And so really, like, you know, like Sean, I was pretty late to it, really. I don't think, well, I say pretty late to it, a couple of years behind. I don't think I really heard it till probably around 93, 94. Um, And in that classic kind of teen girl of the 90s kind of way, I'm sure any other female listeners of my age will recognize you kind of like are expected to listen to more the poppy side of things and actually it's not very for girls is rock at that period of time it's a very masculine world and and you know boys listen to that so my experience of it really did come through boys that I hung around with and boyfriends um, who kind of introduced me to that scene so I have one of those classic stories of the First Boyfriend, Summertime Love, you know, like introduced me to the likes of like Dr. Dre and Offspring and Nirvana amongst a selection of other things that have drifted off in my memory, like Uprising and Destruction Crew. They didn't stick with me. um. <laughs> but yeah, so for me, um, you know, it's a really, really weird one because listening to it back then and my memories of it back then, it was really, like, rebellious and angry and shouty. And it was about, like, kind of this noise and that emotion and impassion and that sort of, like, scratchiness of Kurt's vocals that were just really kind of, like, ah oh, rebellious and angry. You know, and I was the kid that went to school with the Nirvana T-shirt under my very thin shirt so you could see it and then insisted on wearing a black bra so the teachers couldn't tell me to take the T-shirt off. You know, I was really like, yeah, you will see my Nirvana T-shirt, yeah. You know, I was a rebel, definitely middle class rebel without a cause, you know. But um, but um yeah, so it was quite interesting to me because I probably haven't listened to this album for 20 years. Like, I don't think I've listened to Nevermind in years. And interestingly, actually, Nirvana's Nevermind is probably my least favourite Nirvana album. I actually much preferred In Utero and Incesticide and um, the uh, Unplugged album were my sort of, kings of nirvana really mm-hmm. so it's quite interesting for me to kind of go back actually after having this conversation and say all right okay let's listen to Nevermind and kind of remember it and just the, the immediate thing that kind of sprung out to me that i was like oh my god is it's way more pop than i remembered it to be like you listen to it right and you know knowing what i know now about kurt cobain because you you know we've all watched montage of heck and read all of the you know books and seen all the documentaries and things like that the fact that I know now that he was a massive Beatles fan, like, oh yeah, of course, you know, you've got all of these really poppy, bouncy bass lines, um, you know, you've got these very melodic, you know, as much as something like Teen Spirit, for example, comes across as very shouty and angry, you can hear all the words, pretty much, you know, in almost all of them, you can really hear all the words. So it was really weird to me because I was expecting to listen back to this thing of my teen youth of like angry, aggressive music and actually listen to it and thought, oh, my God, this is a pop album, which kind of then really resonated. Right. Because that's kind of what Kurt thought. He didn't really like it because it was too clean. It was too overproduced for him. You know, the types of bands that he was listening to at the moment, you know, at that time where, you know, whether it be bands like the Pixies or the Melvins or, you know, they weren't like heavily produced bands there was you know the the root of the seattle scene was very much that kind of diy you know we haven't got the money to produce things so just do it stick a load of distortion on it and, it and it'll sound fine and you know and that's safe cash so for nevermind to be this kind of really heavily produced clean warm sounding record is kind of really weird so it was quite weird to you know totally turn around my view of it and be like oh my god yeah it's it's not how i remember it actually
1: yeah and i think i think for me like i think that's one of the reasons why it's an album that i return to because it's i remember similarly to yourself i think that at the time very angsty the the kind of the image of nirvana was very angsty um and actually, going back to it, it's not at all that. It's it's almost a lot lighter than than you recall from the time. Certainly, mm. like when I first properly listened to it, um, which, like I say, was much later, much after it came out, my view was it was still that, that it was that kind of uh, alternate angsty teenage uh, rock record and listening to it over the over the years, my opinion of it has changed. And you're, you're absolutely right. It's much more poppy. It's much more accessible. It's a rock record that most people can listen to, I think. But I, but I think there's a power in that. And I think that's why I can return to it in a way that some albums maybe of that era, like some of the punk albums of that time, I kind of think, they're just, they're now noise to me. And it's, I don't know if it's my uh, my hearing changes as you get older or what, but uh, some of those are, are, are much more difficult to return to.
2: I think it's also about your mood and your state though, isn't it, right? Because there's a lot of, I would agree with you, there's a lot of like rock albums and punk albums that I listened to at that time, that I felt that energy, I felt that, you know, I was in, really into like post hardcore scenes of so that emotion, that, you know, that sort of thing was like really key. And actually, if you're not in that state of mind, you know I'm a settled, settled adult, you know, <laughs> with a home and a husband and all those sort of things, and 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 I don't feel like I need to cling to that sort of like emotional stuff as frequently as I did, you know, in in earlier life. And I think that's to a certain degree with the, you know some of the Nirvana stuff. I kind of get what you're saying that actually, never mind to a degree, almost a completely unchallenging, happy poppy album that kind of slots yeah. in at any point of your life, and if you want to drill down into the emotional elements of it lyrically there are some quite dark moments in it and there's some quite deep thoughts in it but ultimately what you have is a pop record
1: you have yeah i think what's what's interesting about it is some of the arrangement in there is that and it's all it's almost entirely through apart from maybe the last track on the album which is uh you have very quiet very quiet bits with build-up and then very noisy and shouty and loud, and then drops back into a, a, a quiet period, and then, and then and then it's raucous, and it's it's pretty much all the way through. So you can even you can listen to this in, in the background. You can almost have it as easy listening, and then it wakes you up. It snaps you out of of whatever it is you're doing with some of that raw power. But um, mm. it, it, I think it is an album that that almost anyone can access now.
0: I, I wasn't going to say too much, but this is like I. I... This this is why I love the new opinions. It just triggers so much more stuff. But I, it's interesting that you didn't that, that you both came to it a little bit after the fact for sort of different reasons. Um, I'm an old fart, obviously, because so I, I was there. <laughs> I was there at the time. Um, and again, my experience was it was a little bit of a jarring thing. First off, I mean, I remember I I, I literally remember I'd heard Teen Spirit before, but I remember listening to the album for the first time, and it was on in, a, in a, essentially a Walkman uh, cassette. And it was in a mill that I worked in because I'd, uh, learned, I'd started playing guitar, failed all my air levels and ended up working in a mill, but running a, band, a van, running a van and playing in bands. So that was kind of my life at the time. I was a child of Guns N' Roses, Poison, Skid Row, other than Prince, who so sort of got me to pick up a guitar. <clears throat> the stuff that I was playing and with, with my contemporaries was, was rock. And this was the, the... There'd been other alternative album releases at the time, things that were creeping into the consciousness, I think. But this album became so huge so quickly that it sort of stands out. And I, I remember listening to it and I loved Team Spirit. And, and, and I found some of the, even, even though it was, as you say, pop, especially when you listen back having, you know, with, I, I know particularly perhaps Becca's taste of music, that, that sort of heavier stuff generally, you, you, you know, your, your level of what's heavy and hard and harsh it diff- differs over time, doesn't it? So, And I can remember at the time thinking, well, this is a bit much because it's that little bit more dissonant, though, yes, very catchy. And um, it's, it's not as sort of straight edges and, and as defined musical melodies as a lot of the sort of blues, bass, rock, bliss, rock I was listening to or the sort of glam uh, rock and hair metal I was listening to at the time. So I, I found it slightly jarring. But I guess it was symptomatic of the fact that I was moving with the flow of the zeitgeist as well that it did kind of take me with it. And and I remember that being, and I'm, I'm genuinely not saying it for the sake of it, I think that was the album. It was that album that made me go out and look at Pearl Jam without a shadow of a doubt and so on and so forth.
2: I mean, I 100%, I would say that Nirvana, what, what took me into alternative music, you know, into the rock scene, they were the conduit for me by all You know, as much as there were other things around at the time that I was listening to, you know, sort of, I was looking back actually through my record collection at the time in like the 90s and things, you know, what I was listening to. And most of it's now albums, right, now compilations, and I was looking back through some of them, you know. And you've definitely got people like Radiohead and Smashing Pumpkins and, you know, even like Spin Doctors and people like that who were a little bit more on the alternative scene, um, you know, either a little bit kind of like hippie-ish or a little bit kind of rocky that weren't necessarily that, like you say, that kind of real glam metal scene, which I I was definitely never, like I could never understand that. And to this day, have never appreciated, like, maybe there's an album that needs to get me into that, but I... I've just never been able to take it seriously. I'll maybe. see what and I can I think, do. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, but um, but I think I think there is that definitely was the bit that kind of took me into like that scene. You know, it was the thing that made me pick up Crang, you know, and read Crang magazine and and start looking into it. And but like in like so, here's another thing, right? Like, because obviously, you know, I'm a teenage girl at this point, and you know, most teenage girls are running around looking at, like, pop bands and stuff. But actually, Kurt Cobain was beautiful. Like, you know, as, he, as much as he was... I mean, probably even better for being a t- tortured genius, but he was beautiful. I mean, I had posters of him... You know, I always laughingly joke and say my two first crushes were him and Pamela Anderson, like... And at the same time, and, like, actually, the two of them, blonde hair, blue eyes, not too dissimilar looking, just want to have better brows at the time. Um, But... <laughs> but, yeah, like, you know, it was sort of... You're right, at the time it was very jarring, you know, those double-tracked vocals, that sort of like aggressiveness, you know the look of the Teen Spirit video is kind of really angry, but then on this flip side you've got like these really bouncy bass sounds, you've got what I saw in an interview recently, um, which I didn't realise, right, I always kind of thought the drums sounded really rocky, but Dave Grohl did an interview recently. In fact, actually, it's uh, if you've ever seen it, there's a YouTube series called Hot Ones, where people eat hops hot sauce yeah. on chicken wings. Yeah. The Dave Grohl one's really good, but he was talking about how all the drum beats are um, disco, and he took all of his influence from Nirvana for drumming from disco. Um, so you've got these disco, like, drum beats, you've got this, like, really kind of bouncy bass lines, and then, like you say, Kurt's vocals go up and down, so there is some raucousness of, like, that kind of, yeah, rock, you know, everything, but then there is this very melodic side of it, and this very beautiful, mysterious man at the front, and then when you look at something like the Teen Spirit music video, it's like it's basically just out of any teen American teen film, like, ever like bunch of angry kids in a in a you know in a school hall with some like cheerleaders you know it's very kind of like I don't know but like you're right at the time I remember it being like wow completely alternative and you know and and seeing Kurt go on like top of the pops and because I do remember seeing it on top of the pops and before I was into it and seeing this kind of guy like basically like mocking it you know because yeah. they weren't allowed to play so they were just taking the mic. and but he did sing live and he had that kind of weird like more kind of noise that he did with his voice and stuff so yeah it kind of it's so weird I don't know it's just very weird for me because I've got this total contrast of back when I was younger it just being this kind of like really like you say jarring kind of like what is this crazy noise to like now where I look back and go, oh yeah, I could see why my mum didn't really mind me listening to that versus like when I got into Pantera, you know. <laughs> Which actually probably is the closest to glam metal I got.
0: <laughs> it is kind of lovely that that gap has sort of, it hasn't made it any better or worse. It's just really, it's, it's redefined really mm-hmm. because you've got so much more context and there's all that context of other heavy music and other angry music or what have you. Um, I love the stuff about Kurt. I mean, he yeah, he was a good-looking fella. There's no doubt about it. You said a really interesting the, the thing about the tortured genius as well and the sort of appeal. Uh, one of the things that came up on the other podcast uh, briefly was this idea of he was. I think he was very believable. That there was something about him. He could. it wasn't ultimately kind of proved out that he he was very real. Don't read too much into that specifically, but he he and, and a but bit of a di- Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And this is part of the dichotomy that is. Him and Nirvana as well for me because the whole idea of this being so the first album was Bleach much more dissonant it had hooks in it mm-hmm. but it was a harder listen a lot of, yeah. you know if you were if you were into pop music that would be a harder listen yeah but like the weird dichotomy of you know they wrote it he wrote these songs this way for a reason he was cognizant enough to write things that were poppy to presumably have a little bit more reach or to be but it's strange because I think he genuinely. The juxtapose is he was going in a direction that he sort of probably knew he'd be uncomfortable if he got to a point as well. So it's kind of a strange challenge you have as a really good songwriter, that you'd be like, you know, I, I don't want the attention, I just want everybody hit to hear my my honesty in my art. But of course that's that's not really an option, is it, I suppose?
1: Well, it's, a weird, it's a weird one, isn't it? It's because he said that he was uh, he was embarrassed by by this album because, like, I think yeah, you said, Becca overproduced and it was so popular. Like, embarrassed to sell thirty million records. I mean, that's that's a hard place to be. But for for me personally, this was like this was like a gateway to me, and it might have come much later. But because of this album, I then went and listened and bought all of his other albums, and yeah. and it was partly because of this album. And partly because of Unplugged, that uh, I started to uh, get a real passion for for that kind of bluesy sound, and and, you know some some of that draw you hear in his vocals, it 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 really comes out particularly Unplugged. I think that actually opened my ears to a lot of other things that are not directly connected, just as a consequence of listening to uh, his albums. But if it wasn't for this one. I probably would never have discovered the rest.
2: And and like you say, you know, going back to what I was saying earlier, it was my conduit into the kind of rock zone because, you know, Kurt Cobain and Nirvana introduced me to, you know, Courtney Love and Hole, who were then yeah. like, you know, in in a in a world of very few female artists at that time, was Absolutely. an absolute idol to me. And that then introduced me, you know, to all of the other bands that were around them at the time. So like R.E.M., Smashing Pumpkins, those were all like the kind of really defining parts of my youth that kind of helped shape who I was and, and everything about me for like, you know, the next you know, 20 odd years.
0: <laughs> I, I, love, I love the alchemy of a powerful album in, in that respect. Something that's so, something that truly changes, sort of catches the zeitgeist and truly changes the scene. Uh, one of the things, just from the from the last um, the last podcast, it, it, I knew this was big when the pub that I was in at the time that I used to drink on a Sunday afternoon, within the period of I absolutely swear to this, within the period of a fortnight, the Motley Crue t shirts and the Guns N' Roses t shirts started giving way to tie dye t shirts with the smiley face, the um, acid smiley face, and it never. It never went back and play yeah plaid plaid shirts as opposed to all black with spikes or what have you so yeah yeah it's power it, it's powerful stuff is that really powerful yeah stuff.
2: you remind me of um, not necessarily that kind of turning point but like something that just would never be like the, that I wouldn't expect now but I remember um, when Kurt Cobain died and the day it was announced and that people were aware the next day a bunch of the kids at my school turned up with, like, black ties and black armbands and, and stuff like that. And you think, like, who, who would do that now? Like, who would have to, like, pass away now that kids at school would rock up and go against the uniform to wear black as a mark of respect because they were so sad about it, you know? It just seems crazy now. I can't imagine an artist being of that level And, you know, and and it is crazy because when we talk about that level, I'm sure I read somewhere that like Kurt Cobain now is literally outsold Elvis, like Nirvana. I'd, I'd have to dig out the stat, but I think Nirvana and Kurt Cobain have sold more records than Elvis ever did, which blows your mind when you think about how big and how popular and for how long like Elvis was. And really, kind of, you know, the people that were listening to Nirvana, the people of our sort of ages, are only sort of coming to that point now where, like, as teenagers, your parents liked Elvis or whatever. Like, we're only just kind of getting to that point now where people have got kids that are sort of in their teens to kind of... Yeah, it just sort of blows my mind a little bit.
0: That's interesting. That's kind of tuned away. I, I was thinking of something, what you said there, Becca. Because I, you know, I, I'm, I'm one of these people that thinks that, by and large modern popular music is kind of strangled by the industry and the next forgive me the next prince the next bowie the next sort of queen that nobody's ever going to hear them because they'll never be immediately saleable or allowed to experiment Mm. or allowed to try and change things the industry will sort of keep everything as it is to maintain its income and its flow and its um, I think a lot stand. of that is how
1: we consume our music, though. I think I said this on oh, that, yeah, yeah. In the last one. And, you know, you, you think of how disposable music is now. Like, we talked about it, certainly on the Like a Prayer, that uh, relationship you have with buying records, you know, going to a record shop and buying a record or buying a cassette or, or you you know, I remember yeah. that buying the Now albums myself and, like, particularly buying them on, on vinyl where you're looking forward to the artwork you you know the inner sleeves every, every part of the all the whole package of it whereas now you stream it you stream it on spotify and and it's just another album you know literally everything's available so it's, it's
2: yeah and and you forget right like that's my problem i've had to try and go back to my record collection because years and years ago i had all my cds stolen and so my record collection is only from memory and mp3s that i have in a folder somewhere yeah. And it's so easy to forget people when you're just on Spotify and everything is available to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then go like, "Oh, do you remember listening to bands like this?" Like you know, like mm-hmm. who? Like you know what I mean? And it's like I've not listened to them in years, and you know, and and I think you're right. You kind of lose bands a little bit, and you know, who listens to whole albums much anymore? That's quite. Yeah, that's quite yeah. a rare thing. Like, we've all got playlists, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You hear a song and you go, oh, that's banging. And you might listen to the album maybe once, pick through some tracks you like, add them to a playlist, and then do you go back to that, or do you listen to that playlist that's got that variety of things or that movie yeah. that you want?
1: The Record Store Day was last week, right? And uh, and and they uh, re- The Streets released <laughs> their, uh, their first album as a special edition 3LP. And, uh, and so I, I bought it. And, and when it arrived, first time in ages exactly that because it's it's an album that that tells a story so you have to listen to it in the the track order so uh, exactly that and and there's an excitement about it uh, in a way that you you know you stick on a playlist and it can be all kinds of random stuff and occasionally you'll get something that kind of twangs your memory and uh, and it's brilliant to take you back there but but you're right that 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 consumption of music really changes the way in which you you recall music you know because you have an association with it i think you know you could I can certainly remember putting certain records on where I was at that time,
2: mm-hmm.
0: but
1: yeah. a Spotify playlist, perhaps not. Um, so I think that has a lot to do with how disposable music has become.
2: I do think it's cyclical, though. I do think it'll turn around again. I think the recent yeah, agree, kind of obsession yeah. with vinyl part is a nostalgia thing, but for the younger generations, I think it is a different way of listening to music and experiencing an album as a story, as a collection of, you know, of artwork.
0: It'll be interesting yeah. to see if that... Uh if that moves moves the culture again. Because let's face it, you wouldn't have thought, you know, there would be a massive vinyl section now anywhere. And it's, you know, it's a primary thing. It's not like a tertiary thing. It's there and it's big. Sorry, just coming back around. So the thing about tuning, Kurt was one of the last, this idea of like icons, mm-hmm. the people who can't come through anymore. He was kind of an icon, iconic. I, I Again, I don't want to overdo it, but his... I guess his his ultimate his ultimate conclusion feeds into those things. It kind of can't not do in a way, but nevertheless, I, I I would sort of in a sense I'd put him up there with the likes of Prince and Bowie for sort of impact on on, on culture and impact on populist music. a shadow of a doubt. And just to add in, so this is quick, Tangential in one sense and not tangential in another. I've been collecting the Now CD reissues and I've got one to ten because I, as a backup in the car, because my car's still got a CD player, so the Now albums are alive and well and they were certainly a very big part of me growing up yeah. from oh, to, yeah, to one. Yeah, yeah. From Now yeah. 20
2: onwards. <laughs> I, 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 now 20 is the first one I remember having owning on cassette. Um, And then kind of moving onwards. And so that's like, literally, like I say, will have been sort of when I kind of really discovered music in the early nineties, really, and kind of... They're an institution. So there was an interesting thing, right? Because you mentioned before about like, kind of like where you first heard it. And I was thinking about that. And I was thinking about what my music history was beforehand. And there was a really interesting point, you know, going back to that comment I made about how Kurt was really into the Beatles. and And I didn't really think about it until then, but actually that's what I was listening to as a kid because as much as we had the pop music, you listen to your parents' records, right? And my dad had this Beatles cassette tape, but it wasn't the popular tracks. It was like some of the slightly darker ones, you know, it was like Fall on a Hill and, Mm -hmm. you know, and those slightly more surreal like Octopus's Garden and, you know, some of those type of things. And actually now you kind of sit back and go, well, maybe that was the bit that was lining me up for Nirvana because I recognised it. You know, the way that, you know, um, I can't remember, there's one specific track and I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but it's certainly it's used within multiple Nirvana tracks where they have that double tracking. Um, and yeah. I once read somewhere that the Butch Vig had talked Kurt Cobain into that and he didn't want to do it. And the way he'd sold it to him was because that's what John Lennon did. Yeah, and so yeah. Kurt was like, fine, if John Lennon does it, I'll do it. Like, And that was a yeah. thing because, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, on... Um, I... <laughs> Prior to doing the first podcast, I went and watched the classic album episode with Nirvana. And I I'm ashamed now because I can't remember which song it was either, but you're absolutely right. That is exactly what the Butch Fig said. He said, this is how I'm going to sell it to him. And whenever I needed him to do something, I just told him John Lennon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. so
2: he's probably but, absolute bull. So he's just like, yeah, yeah, John Lennon did well, that. Yeah, 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 I'm, yeah, sure, uh, I'm
0: sure the recording technique stuff's absolutely spot on. I, <laughs> I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. Oh, well, okay. All right, that's painted a nice... Uh, a nice picture for you guys, and that's that's great. Some nice different things actually there from uh, uh, our previous session, which is really cool. So I guess we're not going to do absolute track by track tonight because be a bit bit hard. do have the first one, but the what the one track before we go to our own sort of selections and, and and expand a bit further. But the one track, I, see, I guess that has to have that little that little bit of a pedestal moment itself is is smells like Teen Spirit, as that was. Uh, well I'm, I'm making a bit of an assumption here for me it was certainly the the first track that i became aware of them i think i heard it um in a club on a very knackered bottom end pa um, and sort of became like oh, what's that then i probably saw it on tv with a video then bought the album that that would have likely been over the period of about a week <laughs> to be honest um but but i mean what a track and again i, I guess my my big takeaway was always the same what what makes that track for me? And this is a guitarist saying it with a track with a song that starts with four chords. But for me, the thing that kicks that track is da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And and sort of what Dave Grohl brought to Nirvana. Um oh, just massive, massive. I I don't know, anything particular either of you want to say about that track, or is it is was that the way in for you, or did you perhaps hear something else first
1: or, or... I, I was DJing uh at the time when I really started to kind of play rather than listen to this, this music. And there were, there were three tracks at the time. Um, Smells Like Teen Spirit, Blur Song 2 and House of Pain Jump Around. It doesn't matter whether you like or hate those records, those three records you could play at any time. If, if a nightclub was not feeling it, you drop one of those tracks and you can instantly change the atmosphere because People just went nuts to them absolutely nuts to them and this was probably my, uh, my, my favorite of those three and interestingly I know that that blur song too was supposed to be some kind of mockery of of grunge music and uh alternative rock and and it actually ended up being their like their, their biggest yeah. hit certainly certainly yeah. stateside um uh, uh, and I don't know whether they were just they were just too good at it or what but um absolutely is uh it is in line with with that sort of sound, but but smells like Team Spirit. Just it just it went off whenever you played it, and for me, uh, it's hard not to be passionate about a record
0: that can change the atmosphere in a club when that's what you do for a living. No, I was going to say, I guess Becca. If again, if I'm reading it, the sort of stuff you were listening to at the time, would that have would that have been the first? song for you that you that I don't think it in?
2: was and I and again I have really sketchy memories of this but I was I when I listened back to the album the it wasn't until I got to kind of territorial pissings and then I was like oh actually I think this was the first track I remember yeah. hearing okay. I definitely will have seen Nirvana on Top the Pops and on the chart show on a Saturday morning because I was an avid watcher from a young age I always watch that so I will have been aware of it and will have seen it I think the first time that I kind of remember being aware of Nirvana is Territorial Pissings. And again, being introduced to it by like a 14, 15 year old boy, like who, you know, will have picked that one because it's like the kind of weirdest crazy sound at the start. And it's kind of aggressive and shouty, um, uh, which is maybe why I remember that album being more kind of aggressive than it than it really was. But I definitely think I have a love-hate relationship with Teen Spirit. I think I'm really, I'm one of those people that I can't listen to something that's overplayed. You know, the reason that I won't listen to the to the Beatles or Queen or even like U2 and bands like that is because I feel like they've been overplayed to death. And I can only really listen to the more obscure stuff that other people haven't overplayed and enjoy that. I can't enjoy things that are like, you know, that overplayed. I don't know what that is, but that's just the thing. And I think Teen Spirit to a degree was ruined for me by having that. Having said that, there is a strong nostalgia for it for exactly the same reason, right? If I went to discos or whatever I was doing as a teenager at the time, you know, that record came on. And again, like you say, like with Song 2 or Jump Around by House Pain, you know, that record came on when you were in a rock club or anywhere. You'd jump out and like, you know, everyone would be doing the air drums and like, you know, screaming and screaming along. And it's got that brilliant bit at the end that, like, you know, like, there's certain things in songs that people absolutely love. So, like, loads of people love, like, a woo or a yeah or a clap, right? Also, a bit at the end of a song where you can't really make out what they're saying so you can sing whatever you like, (laughs) right? People love that. You just make up your words. I've heard my mum singing that song and just putting any old jazz at the end of it, like, you know... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> just but everyone loves that because if you're out whether you're drinking or you're dancing or whatever to just be able to belt something out and scream it out like it's just really really pleasurable enjoyable moment isn't it and I think that's like one of those things that's really really great
0: okay dear listeners we uh we did have a little bit of a chat beforehand to just uh pick out a few songs that um we would talk through rather than doing the uh, absolute track-by-track track rundown. Okay, I, well, Becca, do you do you want to start? Because uh, the other massive single... Well, I mean, there were four big singles off it, but I guess the other one that's definitely in the consciousness... I think I'm, I'm, I'm making brash general statements possibly there, but I, I think the other one that would be massively in the conscience, slightly above another one, would be Lithium. So... Um, Talk to me about Lithium, Becca.
2: Yeah, so, I mean, Lithium is my favourite track on the record, by far and always has been, and listening back to it, I kind of had that moment of, God, I love this song. And like you say, yeah, like as it comes with the kind of record, if you think about what was on music TV at the time and things like that, I think Lithium is the other track that I remember seeing the music video for and and that's kind of stuck in my head and, you know, having posters with stills from that video and things like that. Um, and it's interesting actually because it's a really interesting track in that I and it might have been that classic album or something like that but I've definitely seen interviews with Butch Vig about it um, and him talking about that it was like the hardest track for them to record like it was really 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 difficult track and there was a couple of bits that that came out of that that were really interesting me and one of them I've definitely seen Dave Grohl talk about how uh I think it was like the first and potentially only time that any producer has ever asked him to play against a click track. Um and, you know, most drummers don't really want to play against click tracks and to be in a studio, especially if you bearing in mind as well for you know, Dave Grohl wasn't Nirvana's first drummer. They'd had a couple of drummers beforehand and and I think um, you know, within the nevermind album there is still a, some of chad channing's um drumming you know in that album it, despite it being uncredited um so it's kind of got to be this nervous thing for like dave Grohl, right i think he's like the youngest member of the group he's relatively newly joined they're playing this track it's not going well in the studio and his butch Vig goes like oh i need you to play against the click track like you know that's basically like this absolute imposter syndrome moment of like oh my god am i good enough to be here like i don't want to do that and like all power to him, you know, Dave Grohl went home and um, like basically just practiced and practiced and practiced for the entire night to just make sure that he had it. Um, you know, and absolutely like apparently like go, went in the next day and absolutely nailed it on the first take, um, which, you know, is really kind of classic what you would expect from Dave Grohl, kind of obviously knowing him now in his further career. Um, but interestingly, the other thing that kind of um, came out of Lithium was the track Endless Nameless, which is the sort of end track uh, was meant to be a hidden album, but allegedly got left off the first cut and ended up getting added back on later um, mm. through mistakes that were made by the uh, audio guys. But um, that track is basically a song born of frustration of not being able to get the guitar part right in Lithium. So Kurt Cobain was absolutely sick of this track. He kept playing Lithium over and over again, getting it wrong, getting really angry. And so just kind of at the end of one of these days, just absolutely powered out the guitar parts for Endless Nameless um, and allegedly absolutely just smashed his guitar to smithereen in pieces at the end of that track. Because he was just so angry, um, which then kind of goes back to your comment about like that honesty and and like that authenticity that he had. You get a track like that that genuinely was just born of out and out frustration, um. But interesting again that lithium again pop song. You know, it's mm-hmm. got, and I think one of the really nice things for me, um, which I did a bit of nerdery on this because I wanted to know so. You know, anyone who knows me knows my brother's a sound engineer, so I kind of know a little bit about it and I want to know things. Um, and uh, I was kind of really interested in the, the guitar sound because it's really warm. It's really warm and like a little bit muddy and, and kind of it's got this real kind of beautiful tone to it. And apparently the way they achieved that is they actually played uh, the guitar through um, a fuzz box and then through a bass amp and recorded it using one of the like a traditional little kind of like bass, I don't know what the microphone was nowadays, but a microphone that was used for bass. So it actually was kind of like using the kind of like bass technology and the sounds and, you know, whatever the wording for it is, to pull the guitar through, which I'm assuming is what gives it that kind of real warmth and kind of lovely feel to it. Um so yeah, I thought that was quite a interesting little tidbit on that uh, for those absolute audiophiles that like that level of nerdy um, I, mean, <laughs> I wish I could remember all of the all of the specifics of it but yeah it just it just made me laugh that that was kind of like oh okay yeah it sounds really kind of warm and bassy well because you're using you know that sort of stuff which is quite nice
1: no it's funny you say because I, I was saying to, to Paddy before we uh, before we joined that I'd kind of Put some headphones on and put myself in a darkened room and scroll some notes in the dark about this. And and exactly the same thing. Well, you know, the, the couple of the takeaways for me on this particular track was the warmth of the guitar sound, but also it's it's one of those where you go, does Kurt Cobain really get the credit he deserves for the quality of his vocals? Because they're just and it, it happens quite a lot in this album, but they're just on point. They're just totally on point and. Uh, you're right it's a it's a it's a a pop it's a pop song i seem to remember the video i could be mixing it up and i seem to think it was kind of a bit of a play on a on a um a pop music video as well it was certainly it was a it was a pop record but there's also something very nirvana about it i think it was
2: um well yeah because it goes back to that thing you were saying about that kind of like jumping up and down right because it has these really 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 Quiet verses that then transition into these really raucous loud choruses, which yeah. is sort of like almost like the trademark to a degree. The,
0: the darkness and light was their motif, yes. wasn't it? You mm. can this this is this is what I like about right pop sensibilities. You can be a pop band in the charts with, with a, a, a group of uh young young lads, young ladies just, just doing pop music. You can hit something hard like this, you could be, I don't know ministry doing it with three guitars and a load of sequences and two live drummers as well you it or, or, or uh, you know nine inch nails or something like that but the, that that key thing of you can make a thing poppy by you know utilizing brilliant hooks and great melody um, and it, it you, it's you can just insert it into any style of music pop this is like yeah pop pop isn't pop isn't a type of music in a sense there is a a distinct pop but popism and pop sensibilities is sort of universal and um and yeah this album as you put as we've all said it absolutely reeks of it it absolutely reeks of it um and completely unsurprising that it was listening to the Beatles because they they were about as good as uh some of the parts for people who <laughs> could possibly be for writing pop tunes basically
2: Yeah, Yeah, and I think it says a lot, doesn't it? Because you've got people like he's really into like the Vaseline's and the Melvin's and that kind of early DIY Seattle kind of scene. It's not quite, you know, he, he does quote himself as being quite influenced by punk. But at the same time, I think it is like that kind of more softer. I mean, like, you know, Seattle at that time, like, you know, previously had been a real kind of hippie city so it was never a mainstream place it was always quite a hippie place um. but you know as I kind of understand it from the documentaries and stuff that I've seen kind of took a real downturn so you kind of have this kind of like hippie place with the vibes like oh it's cool it's chill man whatever you know all of a sudden everything's going really wrong you know like industry's going wrong people are skint they've got nothing and so it's like this combination of like that kind of hippie kind of chilledness but with this kind of like frustration and despair almost and mixed in with like these pop vibes. It's kind of, I think it's almost like there's a little bit for everyone to a degree. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's,
0: it's subject matter is almost an emotional dissonance with what pop would instinctually be.
2: Oh yeah. Cause you're talking about a record that, you know, is ultimately we're banging on about it being a pop record. Right. But you know, there's this there's, there's comments, you know, there's talk of abortion, suicide, rape. You know, the content of this album is really dark in comparison to probably much else that was out there at that time or even to a degree after that. You know, you look at some of the rock bands that were around afterwards, they're not talking about that level of kind of really, you know, really you know that you know there's anger and there's frustration and stuff but you're not talking about like i say abortion who and even to this day hearing tracks like you know talking about things like that that's quite infrequent right you're not hearing that very often (laughs) unless unless right it's quite alternative you know unless you're listening to dying fetus or something like that like, like fair play but like in something that we're talking about in the pop realm I,
1: I seem to remember reading um at the time that that the reason why they got so much airplay was because uh, in some of the mixes that you you couldn't really tell what he was singing about that the, the lyrics mm. were seen nonsensical and that he was Almost mumbling his way through the tracks, that 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 it was almost intentional. That you couldn't quite pick up all of the things, and therefore it's probably okay. And then some radio stations were like, "It probably isn't okay, so we're not going to give it the airplay." But but most did because they knew that it was a sound that was going to get listened to. And like MTV did it. I mean, they they went from like being played at two o'clock in the morning to being on almost every five minutes. So I remember, mm. like you were saying earlier, like it'd been records being overplayed. Certainly MTV was guilty of having that cycle of overplaying music videos and mm. Teen Spirit was definitely definitely one of yeah,
0: those. Yeah. For sure. One of the other ones you mentioned as well, uh, Becker already it was um, Territorial Pittings, which mm. is is kind of a oh the gonzoid more gonzoid punk perhaps track on the album. What's uh, what do you have to tell us about that?
2: Uh, yeah, like I say, that was that was more I think like I say, I think it was my introduction to it was via teenage boys who, you know, that was angry, it was bouncy, it was, you know, raucous, Um, you know, so I can understand the appeal to, you know, to teenage boys. So to play it to me, I was kind of like, oh, okay. And, you know, looking back on it at the time, I don't think it was a favourite. I think it probably was more of one of the more challenging tracks on the album. It's less kind of pop and like you say, it falls more into that kind of punk category. Um, you know, looking back on it now, I quite enjoyed that track, you know, but then that's after 20 odd years of listening to punk. So like it's a bit more in my wheelhouse nowadays. But yeah, I think it just, it's an interesting, it's like it's an interesting track to have on that album, right? You've got, and again, it's almost like we're saying that we've got, within these songs, we've got this darkness and this light, this like anger and this calm. And actually throughout the album, you have that, right? Because you've got out, You've got tracks like Territorial Pissings, that's all energy, all aggression, you know, real out there versus a track like Polly, where it's kind of really calm and dark and quiet. And like, so it's almost like the, the track listing is in itself a reflection of how the songs are actually made up.
0: No, very much so. So you, you, you mentioned Polly there.
2: Mm. My least favourite, my yeah. least favourite. Right, but, like, not a song I skip, but I just don't like it. But I think, you know, again, it goes back to that content thing, really. So mm-hmm. I, I think they address it on Montage of Heck, um, but certainly within some of the books written about it and biographies, that it's Polly is written about a rape, and it is, it is literally written about uh, a girl a teenage girl, like a young teenage girl in the 80s who was abducted um, and she was basically kidnapped and held hostage. And I think literally like hung either in a cage or or something like that. And so the song is very much about that, which so it kind of, you know, lyrically, when you listen to it, you kind of pick up on some of the lyrics that you kind of like, oh, but the interesting thing that is kind of like, Something that you don't really hear, right? Because the song isn't written from the view of the victim or the observer. The song is written from the view of the kidnapper. Yeah. Like, you know, it's it's about this idea that this like young teenage girl has befriended a kidnapper to try and get away, like played along to get away. And he's written it from the kidnapper's view. Like that's like, when do you hear that? And again, that's one of these things of like, we talk about this like as a pop album. But that's some real dark shit right there, like you yeah, know. Right and there. and again, something that you know, you name me another pop song that you can think of that's talking about from a rapist's perspective. Do you know what I mean? Like,
1: it's one of those. It's one of those records that if it, it you could play it on in the background and think that it's quite um, just a soft song, and then when you sit and you listen to it, you go, oh, 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 my god, because uh, uh, it's it, it's not even disguised. Like the lyrics are. Are pretty distressing stuff, right? So, mm. to, for it to pass you by, you think, well, where, where was it? But it, I don't know if it's the melody, if it's his voice, or what. There's something that disarms you about that song. But then, when you when you do listen to it, like say in a darkened room, and you and you focus on what you're listening to, it's quite amazing how how, how yeah, you're listening to you're politics. listening to
2: a track about rape and torture yeah. and. And, yeah. and, and this guy that kind of wants it and like and you know right, and you because
1: of the viewpoint the viewpoint that you're you're listening to it as if like through the protagonist's mind and and, and that's it's kind of yeah weird. And,
2: and and for Kurt Cobain to be clever enough as well because don't forget we're talking about a man that at least at this point he's like only in his early 20s right so you're talking about a man in his early 20s who has been clever enough to write from the fact that it's that you know from the view of the aggressor but also that the aggressor thinks that this, you know, that this is some sort of kinship between these people and, like, and that almost, like, he's not in the wrong. And and it's kind of, like, really, really weird. And it's really interesting, right, because you, you know, back at the time I wouldn't have even considered it, but, you know, and I don't profess to be a hardened feminist, but, you know, now looking at it, like, as somebody who has been interested in feminism for some time, that kind of, like, I don't know, that kind of viewpoint, it's just really, like... I don't know that you would get that now. I don't think you could write a track like that now. I don't think you could sing that.
0: The unnerving point about it sort of feels like to me that why did he choose that? Because he doesn't... He just does it starkly. There doesn't seem to be any payoff to it. It's just there. That's the point of view he writes it from. And it's informed from a situation he was kind of aware of on the news. Mm -hmm. But it's... Again, because you... I mean... I don't think there's anything sinister with Kirk Cobain in, in any way, shape, or form, but you, you don't get a sort of there isn't any positive spin. And and I say no no payoff as to why or what, which, you know, as somebody who's listening to art you're not necessarily gonna get and that's understandable. But that in and of itself is is quite disquieting of somebody that I guess the flip side of the coin is, you know, blue eyes blonde hair, as we've spoken about. It.
2: Yeah, yeah, and, and, and like, as much as, like, you know, in his later life, obviously, you know, drugs are a big thing and heroin and, and you know, the alleged sort of, you know, obviously none of us really know, but the alleged sort of pain that he was suffering from, from chronic illness and stuff. But, you know, prior to that, Kurt Cobain, you know, if you read stories about it from friends and family... He had, like, a really happy childhood and upbringing, like, for the most mm-hmm. part. He wasn't, like, a tortured genius from having, like, a really traumatic life. I mean, it depends on the accounts you read, obviously. But, you know, for the most part, most people seem to think that he kind of didn't have that tough a time until maybe his sort of later teens. And then he sort of gets into some stuff that maybe, you know, throws him in a different direction. But, yeah, so it's, it's those obvious. But obviously... You know, there is always these darker themes. His obsession with, you know, certainly like um, childbirth. So, so here's a thing that I read the other day that I didn't know. Um, I looked into this when uh, the guy on the cover of Nevermind uh, started to sue uh, Nirvana, right? So, yeah, and I was kind of reading up on it because it's an interesting thing, right? You know, you know, yep. saying all oh, that they didn't have permission to print it and everything. Um, but I actually found out why the Nevermind record was that image. And it's because Kurt Cobain wanted to put a picture of a water birth on the front cover. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. And and he couldn't, they wouldn't let him. So he said, well, fine, you know, and that was the alternative. Yeah. You know, you look at things like in Utro and yeah. and even like, you know, th- there's so much imagery within all of the records yeah. about this concept of like childbirth, water birth, abortion, like climbing back on um- the umbilical cord, you know, all of those things. There's a definite theme throughout all of it. And again, I don't know whether people were talking about that around the time that like Nevermind was around Were people considering that that was or was Nevermind just such a clean pop album and people weren't kind of paying attention to what was behind it at the time.
1: I don't know because because the, the artwork on on that album like on the reverse cover so I'm gonna, I I have it here so I will show you it obviously not not too great for the listeners but um like on the back the 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 monkey and I don't know if you've picked up on this so this this is a co- this monkey is like a like a little monkey in front of a collage that Kurt Cobain did, and this this collage is made up of uh, like diseased vaginas and uh, all kinds of all kinds of nastiness as, as he was prone to do. And uh, funnily enough, just managed to managed to get through on the back cover of the album. And there was there was more focus. And the, the story I read about the uh, about the front cover was that they wanted they wanted to uh, censor it, like the record label. I think it was uh, Geffen wanted to wanted to censor it. Uh, so they wanted to effectively put like a, a black line over it so it was censored. and and Kirk Cobain said, uh, you can only put a sticker over the top of it that says, if you are offended by this, you must be a closet pedophile. And, and and so so in the end they relented and put out that album cover. And I, think, I think that I think that's a brilliant story.
0: That was indeed on the on the thinking about it, I think that was something that was mentioned on the um On the classic album thing, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was was a challenging visual, a challenging visual. (laughs) Uh, And again, as times have moved on, I don't think you'd be able to do, put that album cover out now. No,
2: no, Uh, I don't think you could release a track like Polly. I don't think you could put those... Probably not, what's on the back of that would be, you know, if you look at now, what gets absolute fury and uprage, you know, (laughs) actually, arguably, we were less conservative at that point than we are now in some degrees
0: it's so it's so strange how over time things change like that um that I, I, it just brought to mind the appetite for destruction cover yeah, yeah. that they wouldn't initially let them have it's it's oh where, and you know what's art what should be allowed there's no ill intent it's telling a story or it's it's uh, seeding an emotion but again what are emotions you shouldn't see what are things you shouldn't talk about what should be in it oh, God, we could go on forever. Which I won't, I won't, don't worry, let's stick with the album. Um, there he goes again. Sean, uh, you had a, a few songs you wanted to have a talk about, I believe, uh, Something In The Way was one of those.
1: Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong, I've not I've not, I've not got a huge amount to say about each of That's these right. tracks, other, other than, like, Something In The Way, I think, deserves to be talked about, because there is, it's the atmosphere, the textures, the moodiness, it is... I don't know if you caught it but I went to see um, the Batman at, at the cinema and there is a scene and it fits so perfectly right we talk about it's been a pop album absolutely this is a perfect record for a dark and moody scene and it was dropped in and it was absolutely perfect because it has that 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 texture about it it is a it, it, it's just a beautifully constructed track I think to to capture. That dark broodiness, and um, I, I, for me personally, I, I think it's a hugely underrated track because it's so understated.
2: And actually, for me, it's a track I love, but weirdly not on this album. I prefer the unplugged version of it, where you've got the cellos, which almost yeah. brings an extra level mm. of that darkness and moodiness to it. um But yeah, it's interesting because it's not an album that would immediately stand out to me on never mind but like i say you know absolutely on unplugged
1: yeah i think for uh, i've tried i've tried it's hard i think this one because it's like you said uh, i was going to talk about um the endless nameless because it's like the revolution nine it's just pure insanity at the end of the record and and because of the backstory that you mentioned earlier but something in the way for me uh, it, it's as a standalone track maybe not within the context of the album as a whole or maybe even not as a nirvana track but just as a as a piece of cinematic music if you like atmospheric drama i think it it's it it stands alone
2: it's interesting actually and i was annoying me because i can't remember what it is but talking of cinematic things you just really made me realize I will admit to watching Bridgerton. Don't care. It's brilliant. You've <laughs> not see me. It's quite funny. Um, however, there was actually a string version of a Nirvana track in Bridgerton, yeah. the first episode Guilty. of the second mm-hmm. season. Yeah. I can't remember. Can you remember? I think it's Stay Away.
1: Yeah, it is. And, and they did quite a lot. I think it was one of the things I, I pointed out to my wife about that series is they do quite a lot through the series is they, mm. they do like – versions of modern tracks and um That's... i think they did i think they did it in peaky blinders and a few other West things. Go, they um, did it in yeah. uh prolifically in yeah, with black holes yeah, yeah. uh, i love that uh, yeah, clever color, yeah. I, yeah. Um, yeah. I think brilliant yeah
2: but yeah no it's uh, definitely if you've not heard the string version of stay away it is actually quite beautiful
0: um on a plane sean So I think I mentioned
1: earlier about some of the kind of uh, like bluesy country tone of uh, Kurt Cobain's voice. And I think on a plane that comes out, particularly in the opener, I think that comes out quite a lot. Um, So again, I I think that, like I was saying before, I, I think Kurt Cobain as a rock star, I think gets the plaudits that he deserves. But I think as a vocalist, I'm not sure he does. Um, and I think that on a plane is one of those where uh, again as a vocalist this just kind of shows off some of his uh, some of his range. it's not all uh, angry and it, it doesn't necessarily come out on this album. I think there are better albums that show that for sure. but on this album I think on a plane is one of those where it shows a, a different side of his vocal abilities and um, that's why I wanted to, to call this one out. I think that, in particular, in this one, and it might not necessarily be his vocals, maybe the the musical arrangement. There are, there are some very, very good like key changes that happen that drive a bit of emotion into this track, and uh, and that takes you on a bit of a journey because I think it's quite a it's quite a simple track. It's not one that you would go to necessarily if you're going to stick the album on and listen to a couple of tracks, you might skip it. But actually, if you stop and listen to it, I think it's it's a bit of a, a bit of a ride.
0: I think what one of the things that. I- Again, there is a certain amount of subjectivity. I do think there's a difference between, well, they cross over, but there's like somebody who's a really nice singer, but somebody who's a really good vocalist. And they're not mutually exclusive. But I mean, like, in my head, I'm like, so Nat can Cole, beautiful voice, beautiful singer. Andrew Eldritch from The Sisters of Mercy is certainly not a beautiful singer, but he's a, he's a great vocalist that fits perfectly with what they do.
2: But there's personality, isn't there? Like you know, it's yeah. a frustration to me. So, uh, so I um, I uh, used to sing, haven't done in years. And in lockdown, everyone took up things, and I thought, you know what? I'm going to start singing again. And I got singing lessons. Cool. And my major frustration with singing lessons was being taught how to sing properly, because being taught how to sing properly loses so much of that personality, mm-hmm. you know. And and you realise that actually, the singers you really love probably aren't technically proficient in in some in some ways at all um you know um or, the, or maybe they've been given some kind of vocal coaching but it's all about that personality and I think that's the thing with Kurt Cobain is you could nail Kurt Cobain's yes. voice in a darkened room any day um although interestingly going back to your bluesies comments uh I don't know if you've seen them or heard them Um, And I have no affinity to them to advertise them or anything, just genius of, as an experience as an ex-Nirvana fan who did never get to see them Um, and is furious because some of my friends did. But um, if you've not heard of them, there is a Nirvana slash Elvis cover band called Nirvana. I've heard, Um, yeah. (laughs) Oh, I mean, if you haven't seen them live, I implore you to go. It's probably the first time in 25, 30 years (laughs) that I genuinely threw, like, fingers rock horns in the air. That's literally the first thing I'm going
1: to check after after this, honestly. that's super amazing.
2: But the thing about it is that you don't realise at the time is how much Kirk Cobain sounds like Elvis. Like, and, and it seems, and anybody who's not heard it now will be listening to me going, Rebecca, okay, you are, on bar, you are losing the plot. Uh, I'm yeah, telling you right I, now, totally get it. go and find Elvana on YouTube. Watch it and be like, oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> very much a lot so. like Elvis. Um, and, and, and again, just a extra add-in for them because I thought they were so genius. Um, if you are a proper Nirvana nerd, loads and loads of little Easter eggs in their gigs, just little lines from you know, like the Live Tonight Sold Out video that you can't even get anymore, but so many of us would have watched as teenagers and, and, and bits from live shows or just elements of their performance That's if you're like the true super nerd, you'll you'll spot it and it'll just make you feel all warm and fuzzy inside i'll start with the sales pitch now they can sponsor no, you I, 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 I,
1: well i've never come across them and i'm definitely going to be checking it out after this for oh sure.
2: i I, I know they're right playing now. in new york soon so i am i am there with bells on
0: Unlikely. i again as as uh you two both know I, I live somewhat in in the tribute world as a musician and i am very aware of uh, elvana and indeed, Sean, you do need to check them out because they're, they're <laughs> unique and brilliant. They really are. Uh, yeah,
2: but it's, it's a fantastic way of experiencing Nirvana live without being able to do that because yeah, yeah. you know, they are an awesome... And, and nice there brilliant. are a few
0: decent... There are a few decent tributes to them out there as well. Um, but I, I, I'm, I, I'm not going to peddle my... <laughs> My side <laughs> of the world, it's just no, no, let's stick to the real stuff, it deserves it. Um, but yeah,
2: no, I, I bring that one up specifically, just like I say, because of that vocal. Oh, absolutely, no, you you think back of Nirvana if you say yeah. someone on the street, you know, what's Nirvana's, and they would think of that scratchy kind of throat, yeah. kind of guttural sound, but actually, those kind of really deep, soulful kind of bluesy moments are really definitely in there, um, and, and are kind of one of the more beautiful areas.
1: Well, the first time I noticed it was actually when I, I, I watched, uh, well, it had been the M- MTV Unplugged, watched the live performance, obviously, mm. on MTV. And it was then I really noticed it, that because obviously it, it is a little bit more stripped back by its very nature and and actually got to show off, really, what a, uh, what a performer he was and in a completely different setting. Mm. You know, it was completely out of that kind of concert headbanging type thing, if you like. And, and I loved it, absolutely loved it, fell in love with it.
0: Yeah, no, it, it, I agree. It's when you're, not hide, when you're not hiding behind a wall of sound and everything's laid bare, Kurt, mm-hmm. Kurt could do it. He could yeah, really, really do good. it. Uh, special. Spe- it goes back to what you both said. It goes back to him being a very special vocalist. He was definitely mm-hmm. that. Um, okay, I think last song for you, where uh, Sean was uh, big single number three, Come As You Are.
2: Yeah,
1: and I I wasn't sure whether whether to go with this one or breed to be honest, and um and I'm not sure which one's easier to talk about because like you say, come as you are, is, is is almost easy listening when you consider the rest of the the album. It's probably more so than like Teen Spirit. this is if you were to listen to this track on on a radio, almost anybody could fall in love with Nirvana, I think, because it's so easy. It's 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 effortless. And as we said, like uh, their, their hallmarks, it has those quiet bits and then it gets raw and loud, but then it, it, it settles back down. And for me, this is just one of those, it's not surprising, it's one of, those, one of the big singles, really. Mm. Uh, but f- for me, it's like most of it, it's beautifully composed. It's very easy to listen to. It's got a great hook. Uh, and again, the vocals are just superb on it. It's, it's a great track.
2: It's got that haunting line on it as well, hasn't it? The uh, I swear that I don't have a gun.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, every time yeah, I sing yeah. that
2: now, it's like yeah, such a haunting yeah. line to be like, "Yeah, you did." Turns out.
1: Yeah, and I, I was thinking the same. Like last night, I, w- I listened to it again, and um, and that's probably why I chose that over Breed was be- because of that. Is because lyrically, it's a little bit all over the place, but there are there are lines within it that really stand out. Obviously, because of because of what happened ultimately
0: cracking track, though yeah uh, again light and dark motif yeah. quiet powerful Nirvana could really do that in, in in spades they were brilliant at it absolutely brilliant at it okay so we'll start to round up um, so this yeah I, I did I did slip this in sort of pre pre podcast but do we think and again, without sort of, I'm I'm asking you this sort of off the hoof, so I do appreciate this is a really rock hard one to ask for a comment on. But on balance, was this the most important rock album of the '90s? Do we think?
1: No, not for me personally. I think it is. I think it's it's one of uh, for sure. Mm-hmm. There's no question about it. It it deserves it deserves to be considered as one of the greatest albums of all time. I think not just of the '90s. I think.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, I think it probably opened avenues to so many people and probably still does open avenues I imagine that people are still listening to punk as a consequence of listening to Nirvana and listening to other rock albums as a consequence of this album because I think that we all agree of of all of their albums this is the one that's most accessible for sure if it resonates with others as it has with me um, it will kind of force them to explore the other things that they've done and also I think it was I think it was that said it, but basically, if if you want to understand music, listen to the listen to the bands that your favorite bands listen to, and this is this is one of those that you listen to Nirvana and you go, what were their influences? And you go, and and it's such an eclectic range, and it opens doors to so many things. And I think it deserves credit for that alone. Is it that the most important for me? Probably not. I'd probably need to take a little bit of time to think out exactly which one is, but. I don't think it's the most important one of the nineties, but very important album nonetheless.
2: Becca, what are your thoughts? I, I really struggle with this. I don't I don't know. There have so many thoughts around it that are kind of all a bit disparate. But I think, you know, I agree with I agree with Sean completely. It's an accessible album. It's it's a way of getting in. And would any of the other albums released at that time have have done that? I don't know, you know, we were talking about, like, Metallica released albums that year, like, really kind of key albums, and they were really, really big, certainly in America, but not really resonating, I don't think, as, as popular here. Um, You know, there were a lot of kind of really big grunge albums. I don't know, there was, there was something about Nirvana in the UK that kind of makes a difference, and I don't really, I can't put my finger on that, but they, I know that they have a good relationship
0: I I think you I think I I this is this is again a little bit subjective but I think the European audiences have always been uh more susceptible to alternative forms of music it's essentially
2: Yeah and I, I, but it's interesting right because if you look at the charts rock music actually does better in America because it is more mainstream you know because you have this kind of jock rock kind of culture so rock music as a whole does better it's much more of an underground scene here, but we have a kind of big and thick underground, and 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 so that kind of produces. But but yeah, so I think I think there's something.
1: Sorry, sorry, Back. I was sorry just going mom. to say I think the timing of this has a bit of an impact as well because if you think like um like Guns and Roses in the late '80s, in particular, that start of the '90s, there was a shift in in popular music, particularly like I was saying about mm. like the the rave scene and dance culture and um electronic music was starting to. Infiltrate into popular music that there was there was quite a lot of diversity in the in in particularly in the charts. I think at that time, so
2: it maybe got a little bit diluted. Yeah, maybe, and I think and it's sort of you know and again it's you know I kind of believe that the music industry is entirely cyclical, and you see the same things and you know fashion and culture generally. Um, and I think you kind of see remnants of obviously you know it's very kind of the nineties and grunge and things like that is sort of coming back in again. Um, you know it's very much a sort of certainly from a fashion perspective if not more of a music perspective um, and I think you are seeing like you say you know as much as uh, you know there was the sort of 80s sort of hair metal hairspray metal <laughs> yeah. kind of scene yeah. to a degree it was quite polished yeah. um, and it was a product you know certainly towards the yeah. end of it it was a polished record product absolutely yeah and Nirvana yeah. and the grunge scene were very much a kind of rebellion to that um and you know much like the punk scene to the 70s um was that kind of diy side of things um it was more honesty it was more un- authenticity it was things that people could connect with because you know not all of us can connect with being surrounded by like piles of cocaine hookers and limos but we could connect to living in a place where there was no hope and, and nothing Um, And I think at the time as well, coming out of this period of excess in the 80s into the 90s, which kind of was a little bit more, you know, you see it in the fashion where like heroin chic is a thing. You know, God forbid that's ever a thing now, drug addict chic. But it's a very much a turning point. And so I I question whether another band would have done this. And I don't know the answer. But the bigger thing that springs in my mind when I talk about it is, would Kurt Cobain still be here if it wasn't for Nevermind? Was Nevermind the thing that broke him? Would they have ever been as big without Nevermind? Because arguably a Nevermind is the poppiest album on there. You know, you, like you say, Bleach is not an accessible album to those that aren't in the kind of rock scene and, and neither of those that are in the rock scene, but in that more polished mm-hmm. side. And the albums that come after that, Yes, there's definitely some really poppy tracks on Incesticide, for example. Um, In is quite a kind of equally as dark, if not more dark, especially from a content perspective. So would Nirvana have ever made it as big without Nevermind? And therefore would Kurt have really folded in on himself in the way that he did? Because it, you know, allegedly a lot of it was around kind of that not being able to cope with that level of fame and being popular ultimately because he was someone that always felt like an outsider you know part of the reason why so many people so many of us connect Mm -hmm. to him he was an outsider he didn't feel part of that world all of a sudden he's the center of the universe as far as the music industry is concerned and that's you know that level of pressure having to comply with what you should do versus what he wants to do and that inner conflict is potentially part of the reason he's not here anymore so and then you look at like people like Dave Grohl, for example, and think, well, would I want Kirk Cobain still here? You know, would he have would he have burned out, you know, if if I compare him, you know, to uh, our delightful lead singer of Guns and Roses, is he gonna, you know, fade away in a bowl of lard and and bad wigs? Or is he like gonna go meteoric like Dave Grohl? Or I don't know, it just it leaves too many questions for me to say that it was the greatest one because I think it's just so difficult to know whether that would have happened or
1: not. I think it's a difficult one. As well. Like I said,
2: a very disparate collection of, of thoughts that rambled through my brain at that question. Yeah, I,
1: I think that's great. I think particularly like, because, because he was such an enigma, that was kind of, it was a, it was a difficult one, wasn't it? Because he didn't, it, it said he didn't feel like he wanted to be that popular, but could never escape it because people wanted to know more about this, this, this kind of enigmatic guy. And, and uh, that must have been a real difficult place to be. So, Nirvana might not have, uh, sorry, never mind. Might not have been the, uh, it might not have been the catalyst, but it, it, it could easily well have been for sure.
0: Yeah, I, I'm I'm similarly undecided though. Perhaps leading into it a little bit, one of the things we covered before, um, and I think the thing for me about this album that I would argue that it definitely was was the gateway. It was the gateway to alternative music, mm. being the primary form of heavy music. Heavy popular music. Prior to that, it was hair metal, it was rock. Post that, it was plaid, it was grunge, it was other things. Just, uh, I mean, a couple of interesting dates. 1989 saw The Real Thing by Faith No More and Pretty Hate Machine coming out by Nanny's Nails, right? By the time you get to 91, you've got Nevermind, uh, Blood Sugar, Sex Magic, and again, Peppers have been around for a long time, uh, and Pearl Jam's 10. And then Rage Against the Machine's debut album wasn't until 92. So I, I, in my head, I look at things like that and I'm like, yeah, I think, I think it was possibly the one that pulled everybody into, actually, there's all these bands out there who don't sound like a five-piece, five-piece with two guitarists doing uh, straight four on the floor, blues-based rock anymore. They're all very different. Let's start consuming. And and I, I think yeah, I one. suppose
2: going back to that comment, going back to that comment earlier about outselling Elvis, yeah, like yeah. actually you've got to kind of pay attention to that a little bit, right? Like we've just sat here as a group of three people who will, you know, appreciate alternative music and music in its many forms, mm-hmm. um. But actually, how many people are there out there that could say that about Nirvana? If you talk about the volume of people that have listened to it to be able to outsell Elvis that's that's mind-blowing so arguably you can't argue well you can't argue with numbers right okay. like that volume of, of record sales they got and and for them to be such a gateway a gateway drug uh you know into the rock industry and and punk and and all of it sort of different forms yeah yeah no I, I can see where you're coming from Paddy it's kind of a uh, yeah you kind of argue with those numbers and 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 like you say where well, and and actually if you think back now you know yes Red Hot Chili Peppers have been around for a lot of that time, but do you know what, I bet if you went and looked, I bet their record sales are still way less than Nirvana, yeah, yeah. even though they're still releasing records and still touring I bet Nirvana still top them easily I, by a lot by I just by think by that Mav-
0: Mav- Nirvana woman. Nirvana <laughs> Nirvana will have been contributed to the sales of a lot of those bands massively by yeah, pulling because yeah. this is the other thing, I sorry i would forgotten this when we talk about my apologies the other thing about it is I think um, Cobain pulled teenagers in because any, anybody mm. who's a believable melancholy, who is below the radar, not ostentatious, not, not you know a quiet guy with troubles, that hit teenagers. They, they relate to that. So I think it was the right band that could have an effect on the right demographic at that time.
2: And that's what I mean. Yeah, Yeah. and and zeroes into what we were saying earlier, right, about how, you know, it's not just like that emotional side, but then you've got that thing about teenage boys want rock and angst and girls like boys who are pretty. And so actually he kind of covered a lot of bases. You know, I turned my brain from boy bands to Kurt Cobain and that was an easy move because he was, you know, he had that aesthetic. So I think you're right. Yeah, like it's not just in the poppiness of the music. But it's that overall package that they provide. But that's
1: why listening to it several, you know, like twenty years later, it's so uh, or thirty years later, it's it's a completely different sound. It's a different album, right? It's it, it's it's a completely mm-hmm. different experience to to what it was, what it was back then, um, and probably to to people that listen to it now that of that of that age because it mm-hmm. it still has that impact. I'm, I'm I'm certain it does.
2: Oh yeah, I'm sure if you put that in front of a teenage kid now who's never really listened to rock. Yeah. They would be totally like, "Oh my god, this is so heavy! This is such a," and actually, like you know, we're going go like, "Yeah, it's a pop album. It's definitely a, a pop album with disco and blues, and it's a pop album." Um, but yeah, it still will be to somebody you know that's not heard that before, um, and and yeah, you know, could you argue that, like you say, it's driven all of those people to those bands and to that scene, and and opened up that world, and continues to I, do
0: so. I really think more people. I think the Pixies will have a bit. Will have always had a bigger audience than Definitely. than they would have had had Nirvana not come out.
2: And, oh and god, yeah. I mean, I was a Pixies like obsessive for years, and only because of
0: Nirvana. Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, I think we'll call it a wrap then for tonight. Uh, thank you very much. It was certainly worthwhile having this chat and catching uh, your um, uh, opinions of this band and uh, this album, should I say, and feelings about it. Absolutely great. So yes, uh, I really we'll release everything in the right order and we have a we have our first companion piece and uh, need to need to bank some more uh, original ones out there as well but there's a few in the bag so we're doing all right yeah, i really enjoyed that yeah okay well uh thank you for listening wherever you are and um, wish you